Good, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we invite you into this space and ask you to send your Holy Spirit upon us to bind us to our Lord Jesus Christ, that every thought, word, and work of ours may begin with you and through you be happily completed through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So thank you all for being here again. And uh, to all of you who joined on Zoom and everybody who finds this on YouTube. Um, and uh, so this is class two of Theology of the Body. And so last week, we, we kind of laid the groundwork on John Paul II's vision for the theology of the body and started talking about creation and the first original experience, that experience of original solitude. And so today we're going to go through a couple of other um, of those original experiences. And as I start, I want to just review something that if you've seen me give a talk before, you've seen me do many times. Um, but just to um, put that in context. So that's up. I'm going to minimize this. And... So we talked last week about how the theology of the body is divided into these segments of salvation history, that, that time in salvation history from creation to the fall, the fall to the cross, the cross to the end of time, and then that eschatological dimension. And, and so it's divided according to salvation history. And, um, and one of the themes that I talk about a lot is that salvation history is all of our story, right? It's all of our story. And, and when we tell that story, like, you know, it's simplest form is God created the world and everything was good. And then something happened called original sin. And so the part that we're talking about in the audiences right now is like this part of creation where... God created everything and everything was good and people lived in right relationship and people lived in harmony and, and we experienced life as it was meant to be. And then with original sin, life and relationship and love becomes distorted. And, and that distortion shows up in the ways that we relate to one another. It shows up in the way that we understand ourselves. It shows up in the way that we understand God. Until finally, Jesus comes in order to redeem us. And so that's that other boundary experience, right, that leads to this time of redeemed man, or this time of growing in clarity and virtue <laughs> until the end of time. And then we enter into eschatological time, or that time when everything is made new, and there are new heavens and a new earth and everything that we're reading about in the book of revelation as advent is approaching becomes a reality. And, and so John Paul II will call that eschatological man on this slide. It's the wedding feast of the lamb, which is from the book of revelation. And, and that's our story, right? That's everything that we find in scripture. And, uh, and as I often say, it's also my autobiography and yours. Like I was born into a world and everything was good. And then something happened. You know, my mom died when I was two. My dad was an alcoholic. He was kind of distant in the household when I was growing up. <clears throat> you know, at 11, 
I ended up getting exposed to pornography. And when I was in high school, I had weak masculine identity and the upperclassmen spread rumors about me that I was gay. All those things are things that happened in my life. And there's a million other things, you know, getting bullied. And like, there's this kid who beat me up at the bus stop, like whatever it was. And, and that caused the distortion about how I understood myself and how I understood God and how I understood relationships. But then something else happened. Jesus entered into my life to reveal to me who I am and to supply what I hadn't received to heal everything that was wounded so I can grow in clarity and virtue and hopefully someday get to heaven. And all of us walk that path in our lives. And, and so as we're reflecting on the audiences and, and we're reflecting on this period where everything was good, we go back to the beginning. John Paul II goes back to the beginning in order to, to have some insight into the way things are supposed to be. Because that also points us to what our Lord desires to restore in us. And, and so as we focus on that, we talked about being created in the image of God last week. And, and so I want to just review Pope Benedict XVI's theology of love and what he says about being created in the image of God. Because it corresponds to the original experiences that we've been talking about. And so Pope Benedict has this quote in, a, in an article called Truth and Freedom, where he says, the real God is by his very nature entirely being for, being from, and being with. And, and so there's three movements of love in God. And, and the first movement of love is fatherhood. Fatherhood is active love or self-giving love. It's the love that says your needs are more important than my needs. It's, it's sacrificial love. It's the love that gets us out of bed in the middle of the night to take care of our crying children. And when we put words on that, the words are to will the good of the other, right? Like I desire the good for you and I want what's best for you. The son is from the father. And so, so the second movement of love in God is the way the son loves the father. And oftentimes the way we talk about that in, in human terms is, if somebody loves me and I love them back or like they want my good, I want their good. Um, we tend to use like those exchange terms um, or we might describe it in the same way with the same language. When we're talking about Trinitarian love, what Pope Benedict's doing is he's make, he's drawing out the fact that there's a distinction between these two kinds of love. And because in the Trinity, each person of the Trinity is distinct from the others by their relationship. And, and that distinction is an absolute distinction. And so if the father is a being for, the son can't also be a being for, the son's a being from. The words I would use to describe that kind of love are to entrust ourselves completely to the person who loves us. And so the son entrusts himself to the father, which means I... I'm going to give myself to you, but I give myself into your hands and I, and I surrender myself to your care. I'm going to allow you to take care of me. And, and so it's a different movement with different language. And, and so I, I'll draw that out as we go through the audiences today and, and why that's so important. And then the Holy Spirit is with the father and the son or is the fruitfulness of the love between them or the bond of love between them. St. Augustine would say that the Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. 
And so again, Pope Benedict says the real God is by his very nature entirely being for, being from, and being with. He says man for his part is God's image precisely insofar as the from, with, and for constitute the fundamental anthropological pattern. So what he's saying is that there's a pattern of love that starts with being from another and then develops. And then as we grow, we learn how to be with another and that's an interdependent relationship. And then eventually in motherhood and fatherhood, we're a being for another as a mother and a father will the good for their children. And that pattern matters. He goes on to say, whenever we attempt to free ourselves from the pattern, we're not on our way to divinity, but to dehumanization, to the destruction of being itself through the destruction of the truth. And so freeing myself from the pattern is when I get those things out of order. You know, when my being for starts to take priority over my being from. When, when I'm worried about activism or doing things or service all of the time, and, and I don't have any place to entrust myself. And I don't know how to be at rest. I don't know how to let people take care of me. If my ministry is more important to me than my prayer life, I'm getting that out of order. If, if I'm constantly seeking my identity and who I'm with instead of where I'm from, I'm getting that out of order. And, and so the original experiences that we're talking about, we've been talking about original solitude and original solitude was that experience that Adam has after creation when he realizes that he's alone with the Lord. And, and so it's Adam's experience of being a son and knowing that God wants the good for him, that everything is for him, that God blesses him, that God gives him dominion over all of creation. And he entrusts himself to God. And and so that original solitude was that experience of, of learning that I'm more like God than the world and I'm in relationship with God. And then today we're going to talk about original unity, which is kind of the second experience that happens as Adam encounters Eve. <clears throat> and so as Adam encounters Eve, he encounters a person that's like himself. And it's somebody that he can be with. And so in original solitude, there's only that being from relationship. Original unity, there's that being with relationship. And, and in the fullness of original unity and the fullness of the union or the communion between man and woman in the marital embrace, then a third person comes forth as they have a child with the help of the Lord. And then Adam can be a son, a husband, and a father, a being from, a being with, a being for. Eve can be a daughter, a wife, and a mother, a being from, a being with, a being for. Everything's in the right order, and everything's good. And, and so I'm drawing that out a lot because there's going to be a lot of places where John Paul II will talk about the original unity that flows from original solitude. And sometimes when when I hear talks on theology of the body or people talk about theology of the body, they talk about it in this context that it's all about marriage in the marriage relationship. But what John Paul II is, is really pointing to is that that marriage relationship flows out of the double solitude that is experienced by Adam and Eve. And so these audiences pick up in with the audience that he gave on November 7th, 1979. 
in John Paul II opened with Genesis 2.18, it's not good that the man should be alone. And, and those words are a prelude to the account of the creation of the woman. And, and so he, he's speaking about the fact that there's something incomplete in the way that Adam expresses God's image or that he is God's image. Like there can be more if he can be of also a being with and a being for. He says the meaning of original solitude enters and becomes part of the meaning of original unity, the key point of which seems to be precisely the words of Genesis 2.24. A man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And so, so that meaning of original solitude, right, that I'm created in God's image, that I have self-knowledge, self-determination, it enters into the meaning of original unity that the union between man and woman is rooted in the union between each of them and God. In Genesis 1, there's no mention of original solitude. So in Genesis 1, it's just simply in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. In Genesis 2, it's more drawn out. So it allows us to think first about man in as much as through the body, he belongs to the visible world while going beyond it. It then lets us think about the same man, but through the duality of sex. So, <clears throat> so it allows us to think about the fact that through the body, we belong to the visible world and we go beyond it. There's something transcendent about us. There's something different about human beings from the rest of the created world. And, and we can also think about that through the duality of, of the male-female relationship. And, and then he, he has this one line where he talks about how bodiliness and sexuality are not simply identical, that in our maleness and femaleness, right, that's what sexuality refers to is the fact that we're created male and female, but bodiliness in and of itself has value and, and, it, and our bodiliness has value even before our maleness or our femaleness have value. I was just, I was thinking about that and how um, like in the world where there's so much gender bending ideology that goes on, like really at the root of that is a lack of value and bodiliness. <clears throat> you know, because when, when people identify as an opposite gender, like really what they're, at the root of that is a rejection of their own body and the value of their own body are not receiving their body as a gift. Pope Francis has this line where he says that children should be taught to receive their body as a gift. And even in more common experiences, um, like we all have to learn to receive our body as a gift, right? Like how many of you loved your body all the time when you were 13, right? Like not many of us. And so, so we all have to learn to accept our bodies as a gift. And, and again, it, it might be something that it would be helpful if we just reminded people about that and talked about that and made that normal. And, you know, it's a normal experience for all of us to have to navigate that experience to learn to accept, like, this is my body. The fact that a man, that man is a body belongs more deeply to the structure of the personal subject than the fact that in a somatic constitution, he is also male or female. So, so it gets another way of saying our bodies matter insofar as we're persons, that human persons are a body soul composite 
right? And our bodies have value. Okay. And again, it's, it's an important point because there are lots of ways that people are alienated from their bodies. There's lots of ways that we don't value our bodies. There's lots of ways we don't treat our bodies well. <clears throat> you know, like I, I used to not talk about nutrition because I used to not care about nutrition. And that was just a, it was a manifestation of the fact that maybe I didn't value my body. For this reason, the meaning of original solitude, which can be referred simply to man, is substantially prior to the meaning of original unity. I highlighted that because it goes back to that anthropological order that, <clears throat> that our original solitude right, is prior to original unity, right? that like me being in relationship with God is prior to me being in relationship with other people. We talk about that in lots of contexts, you know, like that's why church architecture oftentimes is the way it is because it's meant to draw our attention towards the Lord in traditional church architecture. Like everything moved up towards the tabernacle, which was the central and focal point. So when you walked into a church building, you're, you were drawn up, <clears throat> which is different from church architecture that's built like in the round where your attention is sort of on like horizontal communion. And the horizontal communion really is meant to flow from the vertical communion. So we're a son or a daughter first, and then we're in communion with others. I'm in communion with others because of my relationship with the Lord. And, and that's, <clears throat> it's something that, again, it's important to be reminded of, right? Like our unity comes from Christ. When St. Paul is writing to divided communities, he reminds them that Jesus is the foundation and it's not him or Apollos or Peter or anybody. It's just Jesus. And because everybody's in relationship with Jesus, that's what makes communion among them. The latter is based on masculinity and femininity. Original unity is based on our masculinity and femininity, which are, as it were, two different incarnations or two different ways of being created in the image of God. <clears throat> so in this section of Genesis 2, um, I remember one time when I was young, somebody said something like, I think my dad said this to me, like the old Testament's all like stories, but the new Testament's history. Um, it was something like that. Like, like this is like a myth and this is like really happened. Um, so, so, so John Paul II addresses this idea and he talks about myth and, and really the genre, the literary genre of myth is defined in this way. Following contemporary philosophy of religion and of language, one can say that we're dealing with mythical language. In this case, the term myth does not refer to fictitious, fabulous content, but simply to an archaic way of expressing a deeper content, right? So, which means like when we look at the narrative in Genesis 2, the story of Adam and Eve and the fall, that it's an archaic way, right? It's the more ancient of the two creation stories, of expressing deeper content. And, and what he's trying to do is unpack that deeper content. Genesis 2.18, it's not good for the man to be alone. Man confirms his solitude by naming the animals and not finding a suitable helpmate. So, so in the narrative, 
it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make you a suitable help me. And then he brings them all the animals. And, and so I always kind of like joke about that and how like God knows everything. He knew who the suitable help was going to be, but he sort of like puts Adam has to have this experience where God says, it's not good for you to be alone. I'll make you a suitable help me. And then he brings them a giraffe and a dog and a rhinoceros and a platypus. And, and he's sitting there and, and in each experience of a new animal, <laughs> if we put ourselves back in his place, uh, he has this sort of anticipation about like, what is this creature? And then like, oh, no, it's not like, it's just a platypus um, or it's just a rhinoceros. And, and there's this kind of anticipation and letdown that happens in that. And in the course of naming the animals, he confirms the fact that he's the only one that's like God. And so after naming all the animals, the Lord caused the torpor to fall upon the man who fell asleep. And then he took one of his ribs and closed the flesh again in its place with the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man. He formed a woman. And so sleep is kind of an analogy where he puts Adam to sleep. And then John Paul II reflects a lot about dreaming and the content of dreaming. And he also says that that sleep is sort of a return to non-being. It's sort of a place of stepping out of the created world so that the Lord can do something new. It's a return to the moment before creation to reemerge from that moment in his double unity as male and female. And when he's talking about dreaming, he says the content of his dream is a second eye which is also personal and equally related to the situation of original solitude. So it's another person who's also different from the rest of the created world. That is to the, to that whole process of establishing human identity and relation to all living beings in as much as it is a process of man's differentiation from such surroundings. And so as Adam goes to sleep, what our Holy father is speculating on is that, He's dreaming of what it would be like to find someone else in the world that's like him. Right? To find someone else in the world that's like him. Now, analogously, when you were single people, you might have gone to sleep at night and dreamed of like the person that you would marry someday. And, and what will they be like? And what will that, what will happen there? And, um, or you might have dreamed of like, the ideal spouse or what your family will be like someday. He talks about the homogeneity of the male and female. And so homogeneity, it means like they're the same. And in regards first to the body, the somatic structure, and it's confirmed by man's first words to the woman just created. This time she is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. And so, so as Adam wakes from that sleep, he encounters Eve and he says, this one at last is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. This is also a body that expresses a person. This is also somebody else who's created in the image of God. This is a daughter of the same father. It harkens back to the Song of Songs where the formulation is used, my sister, my bride, right? My sister, my bride. 
And my sister, my bride, it, it goes back to that idea that there's original solitude, then original unity, that, that she's my sister because we're both created in the image of God. And because of that, I'm able to unite with her as a bride. And he says, flesh of my flesh, despite the diversity of sexual difference, right? Like, so he doesn't sort of look at her female body and think, well, she's not like me either. But, so there's something about her as a person, like she's, he's able to see the image of God in her. Sometimes I'll say, like, he could look into her eyes and see that she knows the same God that he knows, that she's a daughter of the same father. And, and there's something more to her as well. And so all of that is this expression of great joy in finding a being similar to himself. You know, sometimes when I give marriage conferences, I'll talk about that being the at last moment when he says this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh from my flesh. You know, that moment where he's like, this is the person. And, uh, and that again, it's an analogy where like everybody who's married should have an at last moment story. Right? Like the moment you knew this is the person I'm going to marry. And like, how did you come to that at last moment? And it's a homework kind of assignment that I give to couples often is like, go home and tell each other your at last moment story. Like, so it might be two totally different things, you know, or have you ever told your kids your at last moment story? You know, like how you knew, like, this is the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. And like, this is the person who's different than every other person that I've encountered. And, and it's an important thing to go back and reflect on. And because it is like the source of joy, right? It's the source of joy. Like I have an outlast moment story about going to the seminary. And then I have an outlast moment story about like becoming a priest. And I probably have an outlast moment story about why I'm still a priest. I hope. And I hope I have a bunch more of them along the way. Um, because otherwise I'm not growing. Right? I'm not growing. <clears throat> so their unity denotes above all the identity of human nature duality on the other hand shows what on the basis of this identity constitutes the masculinity and femininity of created man <clears throat> so there's unity and duality in the relationship between adam and eve right they have unity in their human nature right they're both created in the image of god they both have a body. They're both a body-soul composite, right? There's duality, which refers to the difference in masculinity and femininity. <clears throat> and that shows that man has been created as a particular value before God, but also as a particular value for the man himself. First, because he is man. Second, because the woman is for the man and vice versa, the man for the woman. So, <clears throat> so we all have a particular value before God. And it was very good. God created them male and female, and it was very good. And, and he says, first, because he is, quote, unquote, man. And, and so we have value before God just because we are. Right? We have value before God just because we are. And which also is important, because for those of us who have chosen celibacy, like, that means I can live a complete life even like if it's just me and the Lord. And then second, because 
the woman is for the man and vice versa, the man for the woman. So there's also this value before God in the relationship between a husband and a wife. And so, so there's like, again, first this blessing, like the Lord delights in each of them. And then the Lord delights in the relationship that they have with each other. And, and even when we think about the sacrament of marriage, that the sacrament of marriage <clears throat> exists when two baptized people get married, right? That's required. If there's a baptized person who marries a non-baptized person, it's not a sacrament. It's a sacrament if two people are baptized, which means each of them have to be in relationship with God first in order to be in relationship with each other in a sacramental bond. And, and so again, that pattern holds together, right? The pattern matters. Genesis 1 expresses this value in purely theological terms, and it was very good. But Genesis 2 reveals, so to speak, the first cycle of experience lived by man as a value. This experience is inscribed already in the meaning of original solitude. And then in the whole account of the creation of man as male and female. Okay, so, so again, that value is there in original solitude and then in their whole account as male and female. Overcoming solitude and an affirmation for both human beings of everything in solitude that constitutes man. In the biblical account, solitude is the way that leads to unity that we can define following Vatican II as communio personarum. Right. So, so again, in this quote, he says, solitude is the way to lose the unity. Right. It's going back and, and I'm going to say this over and over and over again, because I want to emphasize that he says it over and over and over again. And, and also because it's one of the most forgotten things. It's one of the most forgotten things. You know, whenever like there's a married couple in distress, usually like there's something in distress in their daughterhood and their sonship first that needs to be cleared up in order to like, help their relationship to grow. And, and when it, and when we go in that order, you know, like everything becomes better. And the communion of persons in Vatican II, it's, it's also rooted in this other quote from Gaudium at Spes that says, man is the only creature that God created for his own sake. And he comes to know himself by making a complete gift of self. And so, again, that line, it, it also brings out the idea of original solitude, then original unity, that we're created for our own sake, that we're good in ourselves, that we're complete in ourselves in relationship to God. And then we can have self-possession so that we can make a gift of ourselves. In this solitude, he opens himself to a being like himself, defined by Genesis as a help similar to himself. So it's from that place of solitude, it's from that place of being in relationship with God, being complete in myself, that I can be open to a relationship with another person because of those two characteristics we talked about last week of being penetrable and transparent. Okay, the, the opposite of all of this is an idea that there's something incomplete in me and I need somebody else to complete me, you know, which is sometimes what like romanticized, like ideas of humanity are like, right? Like there's something missing in me and I need to find my other half or I need to find my soulmate or like as much as I like Jerry Maguire, like, um, you've seen Jerry Maguire, right? 
and there's that line where he's like, you complete me. And um, I remember seeing that. I kind of cried a little bit. But <laughs> <laughs> like, we don't believe that. Like, that, like, that's not what we believe a human being is and, and not how we were created to be when we're created like a half a person who's looking for my other half. Um, because if you're looking for your other half and you expect that other person to complete you, usually they're going to fall short. Right? Usually they're going to fall short. I don't know if there's married couples in the room with lots of experience, you could tell me we won't have you raise your hands. Does your husband perfectly complete? His solitude is not only the first discovery of the characteristic transcendence proper to the person, but also the discovery of an adequate relation to the person and thus an opening toward and waiting for a communion of persons. So again, this is John Paul II's language. I mean, in its simplest form, really, it's just everything I was just saying, right? In our relationship with God, we discover that there's something more about us. And then that discovery is also, it's there that we find our capacity to be in relationship with somebody else. And, and we can be open and waiting for someone to be united to. He uses the word communio, and he, he says communio says more and with greater precision than community because it indicates precisely the help that derives in some way from the very fact of existing as a person beside a person. Right? So communio, it, it's meant to imply something more, right? that there's a deep relationship and, and there is this relationship where I want the good for another person and they're able to entrust themselves to me, or I'm able to entrust myself to them because I know they want the good for me. And, and he just says community is overused in the modern world. Like sometimes we could say we have a great community, but nobody actually knows each other. And, you know, I can think of examples of sometimes when I, when I meet with clergy one-on-one, um, one of the things that they say is I don't feel like anybody knows me. But they would also say, like, our presbyterate is super close and united, and we are, we are all, like, really, but they don't feel like anybody really knows them at a deep level. Sometimes, like, parish life can be like that. Like, like I forget who I was talking to recently, but, like, a couple of people might be, like, working next to each other at the dinner coming up this weekend, and they might go the whole time without really getting to know each other. Or I can think about some of my friends where we were in the seminary together for, like, 10 years. And uh, it took like 10 years into our friendship before I was like, so what's your family like? You know, like I never asked him those kinds of questions, you know, and I never took the time to, to get to know what matters to them. And, and those things need to happen organically, right? They need to happen organically. So when there's a new parishioner, don't go up to them and be like, what matters to you at a deep level? Because it might freak <laughs> them out. <laughs> but, but eventually we want to get there. Um, and we want to have some people in our life that we can have relationships like that with. In the biblical account, this fact becomes through, its, through itself existence of the person for the person. Given that in his original solitude, man existed in some way already in this relation. The communion of persons could form itself only on the basis of the double solitude of the man and woman, or as an encounter in their distinction from the world of living beings, which gave both the possibility of being and existing in a particular reciprocity. 
So, so again, it's another way that he's saying that they have an encounter in their distinction from the world of living beings. The thing they have in common and the thing that binds them together is each of them are different from all of the animals. Each of them are different from the world. Each of them experience this state of this state of original solitude. And indispensable for this solitude was everything that was constitutive in providing the foundation for the solitude of each. Self-knowledge, self-determination, and the awareness of one's own body. Okay, so again, reason, free will, and the awareness of our bodies. Our bodies allow us to be in relationship with others. Okay, it's through our bodies that we're able to be in relationship with others. You know, again, which is, again, a very interesting point because sometimes we use our bodies to not be in relationship with others and and people do that in all kinds of ways um like sometimes when people are really depressed they just stop taking care of themselves um like i have a friend who has a lot of tattoos like neck tattoos everywhere tattoos and somebody asked him once so did you get all those tattoos because you wanted attention and he said no i got all these tattoos so nobody would talk to me So he was using his body to keep himself from being in relationship. Right? Sometimes when people experience abuse, they end up also with obesity, right? Because I'm going to make sure nobody violates my space ever again. And, and so our bodies allow us to be in relationship um, in distortion. Sometimes we, we actually like use our bodies to keep ourselves from relationship. So just thinking about how much I want to share anyway. <laughs> so sometimes priests get fat because they think it's a way of preserving their celibacy, right? Like this is going to keep me from being in relationship. Um, it's thing, but it's thing for lots of people. I don't, I don't know. Hopefully I didn't offend any priests watching me on YouTube. Um, Genesis 2 reveals the complete and definitive creation of man. Original solitude expresses itself in life-giving or in giving life to the communio personarum that man and woman form. The, the complete and defi- definitive creation of man expresses itself in giving life to the community of persons that man and woman form. So, so everything is ordered towards fruitfulness. It's ordered towards fruitfulness. And, and giving life to that community of persons happens most specifically when they have a child with the help of the Lord. So man became the image of God, not only through his own humanity, but also through the communion of persons, which man and woman form from the beginning. So, th- so this is another point that's a novel point for John Paul II, which is that <clears throat> being created in the image of God also extends to the communion of persons that the husband and the wife in relationship with their children are also an image or an icon of Trinitarian life and love. Right. So, so when I use my Trinity circles and I have like the father wants the good for the son, the son entrusts himself to the father, the Holy spirit is the fruitfulness. Then there's superimposed another diagram of like, there's the man who gives himself and he wants the good for and entrusts himself to his wife. She entrusts herself and wants the good for her husband and a child is the fruitfulness. So every family is an icon or an image 
of God. And, and the communion of persons becomes like a visible sign of, of God's love in the world, right? Which is also what a parish family should look like. It's also what, you know, all of our communities are meant to, to do, to reveal the God who loves us and created us in his image. On the basis of the original and constitutive solitude of his being, man has been endowed with a deep unity between what is humanly and through the body male in him and what is humanly and through the body female in him. On this, the blessing of fruitfulness descended. Right? And so, so again, on the basis of that original and constitutive solitude that we're both created in the image of God, there's endowed this deep unity and, and that deep unity is what he's pointing to is like conjugal love and the marital embrace. When Adam says this one, at last is flesh from my flesh. He speaks these words as if it were only at the sight of the woman that he could identify and call by name that which makes them in a visible way, similar to one to the other. And at the same time, that in which humanity is manifested. <clears throat> so, so when he says this one, alas, is flesh of my flesh, again, it points to the goodness of the body, right? And the body reveals the person that, that in encountering Eve in her bodiliness, he can see that she's also transcendent, that she also is in a relationship with the father. And so John Paul II will say over and over and over again, the body reveals the person. And the body is a sacrament of the person or the body is a visible sign of, of the person. In this first expression, um, there's a reference uh, by which the, the, that by which the body is authentically human and thus to that which determines man as a person, that is, as a being, also in its bodiliness similar to God. Masculinity and femininity the twofold aspect of man's somatic constitution, right? Body soul composite and indicate in addition through the same words of Genesis 2.23, the new consciousness of the meaning of one's body. This meaning one can say consists in reciprocal enrichment. So the knowledge of man passes through masculinity and femininity, which are, as it were, two incarnations of the same metaphysical solitude before God and the world. So masculinity and femininity are two separate incarnations of that image of God and our transcendence, our solitude with God before the world. Two reciprocal way, com reciprocally completing ways of being a body and at the same time of being human as to complementary dimensions of self-knowledge and self-determination. And at the same time, two complementary ways of being conscious of the meaning of the body. <clears throat> right. And so, so there's goodness in being male and there's goodness in being female in each of us, each of them reveal something more and reveal that that unique, exclusive, and unrepeatable relationship with God. <laughs> At the same time, in our maleness and femaleness, there's a way of completing one another or being complementary to one another, of enriching one another, of coming to know ourselves by being in relationship with the other, 
you know, one thing John Paul II will say in other places is like that the man comes to know himself in relationship with the woman or the woman comes to know herself in relationship with the man. And, uh, and it's one of the points I like to talk about again is when we encounter people who are different from us, it helps us to know who we are. Right. Just like in their bodiliness. And, um, because we have that ability to transcend that ability to like step outside of ourselves and reflect on who we are. So like when a man is encounters a woman, he notices that they're the same, but there's also differences. And those differences make me look at what's unique about myself and women do the same with men. <clears throat> so, so I often say like, as a priest, like I need women in my life to tell me who I am and to point out to me who I am. And sometimes those are like ladies in the parish and uh, sometimes they're like religious sisters and, um, and I'm always super grateful for that. And I always tell the story of Sister Miriam and how uh, there was one day I was given a conference to the priest of the Diocese of Lincoln early on when I first started giving conferences to the clergy. I was super nervous because, you know, there's like a hierarchy of who you're nervous presenting to, you know, and like seminarians are pretty high up there because they're super critical and then there's priests and then there's like nuns and uh and so and then there's your own diocese priests and so i called sister miriam to ask her to pray for me and i'm talking to her and i was like sister i don't really know what i'm gonna do because i gotta give this talk and and it's like my own presbyterate and they all kind of know they think they already know who i am but usually i like tell my story and now i don't really know how i need to modify it and and she just cut through all of that. And she just, she was just like, father, just do what you do. God gave you a gift. You're supposed to use it. Your gift to the church just do what you do. And I was like, oh, thank you. Right. If I would have called any of my priest buddies, they would have been like, yeah, dude, that sucks. <laughs> Glad it's not me. Good luck. <laughs> no, I needed her in her femininity to call me outside of myself. You know, and that, and that applies in so many different ways. And, um, you know, I think it, it also can apply to like, you know, when we talk to people from different backgrounds or when we talk to people with different political views and um, because it, it causes us to have to sharpen like who we are and what we believe. Like some of my favorite people to talk to are like my secular therapist friends who don't believe anything the Catholic church believes about morality, because every time I talk to them, they ask me really, hard questions, which helps me to sharpen what I believe. It doesn't, it's not going to change my belief system if I talk to somebody who thinks differently than me, but it might help me to formulate the way I articulate it, which is really important. And, um, and we should all like do that when we always hang out with people that are the same, it keeps us from growing. It keeps us from growing. So femininity finds itself before masculinity while masculinity confirms itself through femininity. That's where he's talking about, you know, we learn who we are in relationship to the other. The function of being male or female, which in some way is constitutive for the person shows how deeply man with all his spiritual solitude, with the uniqueness and unrepeatability proper to the person is constituted by the body as he or she In the formulation, one flesh, so extremely concise and simple, indicates sex, that is, masculinity and femininity, as the characteristic of man, male and female. 
that allows them when they become one flesh to place their whole humanity at the same time under the blessing of fruitfulness, which is really a beautiful line. And, and so, so it's kind of going back to that idea that sexuality within marriage, right, is this moment in which both the man and the woman place their whole humanity at the same time under the blessing of fruitfulness. It's a moment in which a husband and a wife entrust themselves not only to each other, but also to God, right? Also to God. And, and so when we talk about like the church's teaching with regard to being open to life, it's, it's really a matter of like being open to entrusting this moment in our marriage and our family life to the Lord. And, and so sometimes when I talk to couples that are struggling with being open to life, um, it really isn't an, it, I don't focus so much on, sometimes we can over-focus on like, well, the church teaches this and you have to follow what the church teaches and you have to do what the church says. Well, like that's true. And, and, and those things are good, but I would kind of use this analogy. Like, like when we start with moral theology, it's sort of like bumper bowling, like, like this is where orthodoxy is. And we want to make sure we don't go outside the boundaries but it doesn't necessarily teach people all the time, like to throw the ball to hit the pins. Right? Hitting the pins is I'm going to entrust my whole life and my marriage and my family life to the Lord. And it's really like a conversation that happens between couples about, do we trust God to take care of this right now? Or do we like have serious reasons to avoid? Um, and, and we'll get to all that because there are reasons that couples should avoid um, or can't avoid. And, um, and that's a discernment that every, every couple has to make, <clears throat> but that's also why the church teaches about like natural family planning, because then it ensures that each instance of conjugal love is entrusted to, and their whole, their whole being is placed under that blessing of fruitfulness and, and they're open to every gift that's available to them at the time. When they unite with each other in the conjugal act so closely as to become one flesh, man and woman rediscover every time and in a special way, the mystery of creation, thus returning to the union in humanity that allows them to recognize each other reciprocally and to call each other by name as they did the first time. <laughs> so, so he uses like this in, in saying that for going back to the very beginning, that conjugal love was a moment in which the man and woman rediscover in a special way, the mystery of creation. And they return to the union in humanity that allows them to recognize each other reciprocally. It's, a, it's every time it's like going back to the beginning. And the first time he said this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And, and it's, it's a gift that God gave to couples in order to remember each time the reason they fell in love with each other and, and to remember each time the at last moment, right? And that moment of calling each other by name as they did the first time. On the level of man and in the reciprocal relationship of person, sex expresses an ever new surpassing of the limit of man's solitude, which lies within the makeup of his body and determines its original meaning. This implies that in a certain way, one takes upon oneself the solitude of the body of the second eye as one's own, 
<clears throat> and, and so conjugal love expresses the surpassing of the limits of original solitude. It's entering into union with that other person. Genesis 2.24 itself indicates not only that human beings created as man and woman have been created for unity, but also that precisely this unity through which they become one flesh has from the beginning a character of a union that derives from a choice, right? This is why a man leaves his father and mother and unites to his wife and the two become one flesh, right? That that union in one flesh derives from a choice. It derives out of freedom, right? And there's complete and perfect freedom in choosing that person right? and being and allowing oneself to be chosen by that person. The body, which through its own masculinity and femininity helps the two from the beginning to find themselves in a communion of persons becomes in a particular way the constitutive element of their union when they become husband and wife. It takes place through a reciprocal choice. So the body from the beginning helped them to be a communion of persons and then in a particular way in conjugal love it's, it's a constitutive element of their union. Like it becomes the means by which like we enter into a deeper union with one another and a deeper like expression of the communion of persons. This union carries within itself a particular awareness of the meaning of that body and the reciprocal gift, self-gift of the persons. So these experiences of original solitude and unity are foundational. They are at the root of every human experience. The human experience of the body is on the threshold of all later historical experiences. So when we talk about shame or we talk about sin or we talk about anything else, it's, there, there's still things that we experience in our body and, and that experience of the body we find right, in all of those those places. The last original experience John Paul II talks about is original nakedness. And deriving from this quote, they were both naked but not ashamed. And this statement undoubtedly describes their state of consciousness, or even better, their reciprocal experience of the body, that is, the man's experience of the femininity that reveals itself in the nakedness of the body, and reciprocally, the analogous experience of masculinity. By the woman. Then the eyes of both were opened and they realized they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then is the key word in that scripture passage, <clears throat> right? Because at first, like they didn't realize that they were naked. They also didn't experience shame. Again, last week we talked about those two words, penetrable and transparent. Like I'm able to be parent. My, my body expresses who I am. And then when shame enters in after original sin, there's a desire to hide myself from the other person. In the experience of shame, the human being experiences fear in the face of the second eye. Thus, for example, the woman before the man, and this is substantially fear for one's own eye. So, <clears throat> so when he talks about original nakedness and being naked without shame, he, he's going to look at I'll, more closely at, well, what does shame look like? And then we can infer from that what it would have been like to not have shame. 
And, and so I think this is a pretty good summary of, of what shame does for us, right? It expresses fear in the face of another person. And so I have fear of this person who has the capacity of knowing me because I don't want to be known by them. You know, like sometimes people, sometimes there are people in our lives that we encounter and we're like, man, that person is super intense. And if I'm around them very much longer, they're going to know everything about my life. So I need to get away from them. Sometimes people experience me that way. Um, I have this dear friend who's a therapist in, uh, in Georgia. <laughs> and I went, so I went on this conference for the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. And, uh, and so this, this like young therapist walked by my booth and I was talking to them. And I was like, wow, these people are like really interesting. And, uh, and I want to get, I kind of want to get to know them. And so then I passed them later in the day and, and I didn't have any friends at this conference at the time. And so my friend Shannon, she said, why don't you come to dinner with us? So I go to dinner with them. We're sitting there and she just starts like asking me all kinds of deep questions. And, and, I, and I just felt like, man, I just feel like you're like looking into my soul. Is this how people feel when they talk to me? So she's like, yeah, I have people in my life who did the same thing to me. If people experience me that way. Um, Anyway, so that, so again, like shame is like that sense of, oh, I don't want to be known by this person, right? I don't want to be known. And then that's really fear for ourselves, right? Because I'm afraid that if they know me, I'll be destroyed by them, right? I'm afraid if they know me, they'll reject me is probably the more accurate thing, right? I'm, I'd rather have a partial relationship than be completely known and be rejected. And that's what shame does to us. With shame, the human being manifests instinctively, as it were, the need for the affirmation and acceptance of this I according to its proper value. So, so that's an interesting thing that he says there, because he says that if with shame, we instinctively kind of are afraid for ourselves, what's implied there is that we have a need for affirmation, right? And we have a need to be affirmed for who we are which means like we have a need for somebody to say, I know who you are and I love you. Like I know who you are and I'm not running away from you. I know everything you've done and I'm right here. And there's nothing that you could say that would, you know, cause me to feel like I'm wasting my time with you. There's nothing you could say that would cause me to feel like I don't want to be around you. There's nothing I could know about you that would give me any cause to reject you. And, and those are, you know, those are rare relationships. They're important relationships for us to have. It's one of the challenges that I have for like men's ministry groups. Sometimes when I'm speaking at conferences is like, I sort of challenge them to, to say like, are, are you willing to go to your men's group and turn to the guy next to you and say, you could tell me anything and I'm going to be here for you. Because we can do a lot of secret keeping, we can do a lot of protecting our reputation, we can do a lot of like pretending like things are okay. And, and when we do that, we don't experience authentic friendship or authentic communion. We all have a need to be accepted for who we are. He experiences this at the same time within himself and toward the outside in the face of the other. So, so at the same time, when we have shame, we experience that about ourselves. Like we don't want to look at that part of our own life. Like, I don't want to admit that part of my own life. And like, I don't, I don't want to, I want, I want to hide my behaviors from myself. 
Um, like I, I knew somebody once who was an alcoholic and, uh, and they kept their beer under the sink in their house. They lived alone. They didn't keep their beer in the fridge. They kept it under the sink. They like hid their beer from themselves, which was a, it was a fascinating dynamic, but really like that's what it was, right? Is experiencing it within himself and in the face of the other. And, and so there's like an inability to, to face the truth about ourselves by with ourselves. Shame has a fundamental significance of the formation of ethos in the relations between human beings who live together, particularly in the relation between man and woman. The analysis of shame clearly indicates how deeply it is rooted precisely in their mutual relations, how exactly it expresses the essential rules for the communion of persons, and likewise how deeply it touches the dimension of man's original solitude. And so when it says the formation of ethos and relations, that, that really is a way of saying it, it forms like the, the norms of how we relate to each other, right? It forms the norms of how we relate. And like some people have a norm that um, I don't like people knowing my business. That's my norm. And, and that extends to everyone, you know? And so I just don't like people knowing my business. That's my norm. Um, and so so there's a tendency to not get hell. And then when people try to like, hey, tell me about your life. Well, what do you want? What are you, why are you talking? That can happen. Um, yeah. It, it like happens a lot in seminary life, actually. So like, like when you try to get to know each other, they're like, why are you talking about that? Let's just talk about like philosophy class. Um, but it happens in all walks of life, right? Um, I like this line where he says how deeply it touches the dimension of man's original solitude because shame is really rooted in, again, original solitude. It's rooted in our ability to be alone with God and, and to let God know who we are. I'm going to go about five more minutes, maybe. So in, again, original solitude was not identification with the world. It gives way in consequence of man's creation as male and female to the happy discovery of his own humanity with the help of the other human being. Nakedness corresponds to that fullness of consciousness of the meaning of the body and comes from the typical perception of the senses. Communication in its original meaning is directly connected with subjects who communicate precisely based on the common union that exists between them, both to reach and to express a reality that is proper and pertinent to the sphere of subjects, persons alone. So, so communication is based on common union. And that goes back to so the theme I was talking about before, that, that communion between people and the way we communicate with each other is rooted in what we have in common. What we all have in common is that we're all created in the image of God. We're all in relationship with the Lord, especially like as Catholic Christians, we're all in a particular relationship with the Lord. And, and that's where that friendship comes from. C.S. Lewis says friendship arises when two people realize that they know the same good or that they, they see the same truth, right? Like, so you like, you're getting to know your neighbor and you find out that you both have a common interest and then you become buddies and they start hanging out. And, and it's like, oh, wait, I can be their friend because we know the same truth, right? Like wherever I go in the country and I find a Detroit Lions fan, like we know the same pain 
we have the common suffering and, and we can, you know, we can be instant friends. Um, it's one of the gifts of like military academy is that like military academy was like a lot of suffering together and we, it's a manufactured experience and we all had the same exact experience. So if, if I meet another West Pointer, um, we both went through the same thing, even if we went through at different times or different years, even if we were both there at the same time, but we were in different platoons, it doesn't matter. Like we can all tell stories about like, Oh, do you remember doing that one obstacle course or this thing or the time I got hazed and I was pinging the class. And, and like, we all, and like, we just have this common union based on a common experience, you know, and it's, it's our hope that, right. Like, a common union arises within the church because we have this common experience of being redeemed by Jesus. The body manifests man and in manifesting him acts as an intermediary that allows man and woman from the beginning to communicate with each other, according to that communio personarum willed for them in a particular way by the creator. So the body acts as an intermediary that allows man and woman to communicate with each other, right? Our bodies allow us to be in relationship with others. When we say they didn't feel shame, it signifies an original depth in affirming what is inherent in the person, that is what is visibly feminine and masculine, through which the personal intimacy of reciprocal communication is constituted in all its radical simplicity and purity. To this fullness of exterior perception corresponds the interior fullness of the vision of man and God. So again, that exterior perception of the other, that visible perception of man created male and female, it corresponds to that interior fullness of the vision of man and God, of the fact that we're created in God's image and likeness. So God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good, is that blessing that we find in Genesis 1. And nakedness signifies the original good of the divine vision, that, that they could be naked and have no shame. It signifies the original good. There's no defects. There's no flaws. There's no reason to hide. There's nothing to cover up. Seeing each other through the very mystery of creation, man and woman will see each other still more fully and clearly than through the sense of sight. That, that when we can see each other in that way, right, when we really like see other people as a gift that God gave us, we see them more fully and more clearly. Like we see that there's something more to them. Let me just check my... I'm just going to go a little bit more. <clears throat> John Paul II uses this term, the spousal meaning of the body, which really refers to the fact that we're created for a relationship and that our bodies allow us to be in relationship. So the original meaning of solitude, unity, and nakedness allows us to reach the basis of an adequate anthropology, which seeks to understand and interpret man and what is essentially human. John Paul II talks a lot about the logic of the gift. And, um, and so God is the creator and he calls us to existence 
from nothing, he establishes us in the world because he is love. Love isn't in the creation account. Rather, God saw everything he made, and indeed it was very good. Only love, in fact, gives rise to the good and is well-pleased with the good. And, and so he created us out of love. And so when we read, he saw everything and it was very good, it's implied that there's love there. Because love is what gives rise to the good. Giving indicates the one who gives, the one who receives the gift, as well as the relationship established by the two. So, so this line is why I do that Trinity stuff at the beginning every time. Because when John Paul II wrote this in 1979, um, he, uses the, he uses gift of self a lot. But whenever he says gift of self, it might mean the giver, the recipient of the gift, and it might mean the relationship established by the gift. So when he says, like, you come to know yourself by making a complete gift of self, it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing lots of service. It might mean that you are entrusting your heart to somebody. And, and so, so it's important to, to remember that when we say gift of self, it doesn't always mean activism. Like sometimes it means like willingness to be in relationship or willingness to be taken care of or willingness to, to follow someone and willingness to allow somebody to love me and take care of me. And that relationship of the gift like is established right from the beginning of the creation of man. And giving only has meaning in relation to man. The world is created for man. So all of creation is a gift that's given by God to us. Because man appears in it, who is an image of God, is able to understand the very meaning of the gift and the call from nothing to existence. Right? And so the created world is a gift that God gave to us as humans. Right? And, you know, I hope that, like, for couples... Like you're able to say like you're a gift that God gave me and, and really mean that. And you know, that your, your children are a gift, you know, oftentimes. Um, and I really mean it sincerely when I say like, when I write in the bulletin, like that you're a gift to me. And um, because like in every circumstance, like, like being a pastor, my people reveal to me who I am. And also like, there's, there's just a lot of joy in that relationship, um, which is something that I, I mean, it's just a completely new thing and a beautiful thing. Adam, after, after having been completely conscious of his own solitude among all the living beings on the earth, awaits a help similar to himself. None of the beings offers man the basic conditions to make it possible to exist in relation of reciprocal gift. So alone, man does not completely realize his essence. He realizes it only by existing with someone. And put even more deeply and completely by existing for someone. Um, and so, so again, what that language of Pope Benedict is here, right? Like being from, being with, and being for. The communion of persons means living in a reciprocal for in relationship, uh, in a relationship of reciprocal gift. And this relationship is the fulfillment of man's original solitude. It is 8.15, so at last will be the last slide, and I'll remember it that way, because some of you might be thinking, at last, we're done with the lecture. Okay. Um, any questions before I close with prayer? Anybody on Zoom have questions? You can either write them in the chat or, like, turn on your camera and raise your hand or whatever you want to do.
questions in the room. It's okay. Nobody has to have questions. Father, we're not that much of a communion yet. No, I'm just kidding. We're good. All right, I'm just going to pray. And uh, again, thank you all for being here. And um, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for just the abundance of the gifts that you've given us. In a particular way for the gift of the people that you place in our lives to remind us who we are. To remind us who you are, to remind us of your presence. So that's how you continue to open our hearts to whatever it is that you desire to communicate to us. That reflecting on this teaching, we may more fully embrace and accept our humanity. Help us to surrender to, to your love. and be transformed by your divinity. And through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, St. Joseph, and all the saints, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you all for